Welcome to this week's edition of Securiosity, but first we want to tell you about an event going on in the D.C. area. Raise the Bar, led by the National Security Agency and National Cross-Domain Strategy Management Office, is raising the security architecture bar for cross-domain solutions and a formal solution specification is anticipated in the coming months. Join Forcepoint and cross-domain experts on March 19th in Arlington, Virginia for insights into the objectives and guidelines of Raise the Bar, best practices for evaluating and implementing cross-domain solutions, and tips on how to ensure your agency is Raise the Bar compliant. For more information, check out the ad in CyberScoop's daily email newsletter. Okay, let's go. Welcome to Securiosity for February 15th. I am Greg Otto, and it was a bad week for dumb criminals of all kinds. I'm Jen O'Daniel, and in our interview, we're going to talk to Marcus Carey, one of my Mach 37 portfolio company CEOs, who just released a book on how to make it in the cybersecurity industry. We have a ton of funding news to get to, as well as some interesting research on those electric scooters that we've all seen around town being hacked. But first, let's get to those very dumb criminals. Somehow I think Greg has a scooter that we're going to learn about later. (laughs) So a former U.S. Air Force intelligence agent has been charged with espionage, with the Department of Justice alleging the officer defected to Iran in order to recruit assets from the U.S. intelligence community. An indictment unsealed Wednesday, the DOJ says Monica Witt tried to recruit former U.S. intelligence officers and others who have held security clearances as agents of Iran. Additionally, four members of Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Group have been charged with computer intrusion and aggravated identity theft, aimed at U.S. members of the intel community. One of the co-conspirators, Bazad Mizri, was charged in November 2017 with stealing unreleased television transcripts of episodes from HBO, as well as personal financial information and passwords belonging to company employees. So sticking with the theme, why was this dumb? So it was dumb. If you go through the indictment, some of these cyber intrusions, quote unquote, as the DOJ calls them, were just really bad phishing attempts. There was one in particular where the actors tried to send emails to U.S. agents. They were people with security clearances inside the intelligence community that were nothing more than a message that said, I sent you a pretty card. Will you please open it? And Did anyone click on it? It doesn't say in the indictment that anybody actually fell for this, which is kind of staggering to hear about because we've seen some really bad phishing attempts. So bad. And they actually work. But there was that. There was also one where it said this is a link to an online photo repository, but you can't look at any of the photos unless you turn off antivirus, which is just like – like, I mean, that's normal. That's right. Why would you ever do that? So it's funny. They actually decided because they weren't getting anywhere that, oh, okay, we're going to shut this down and we're going to go a different way and we're going to catfish people on Facebook and that awesome. will get us. So, that, you know, it's a lot easier to social engineer somebody through Facebook than it is sure. through email. This was really interesting from the standpoint of this was clearly not – Iran's A-team, this is not the same people behind like Shamoon or any of the sure. other yeah. like high-level sophisticated actor stuff that we've seen from Iran. This was the B-team, maybe even the C-team. Like this was not a good attempt. This was pretty bad. It's not always a sophisticated APT acting on behalf of a nation state. Sometimes you just have bad hackers doing some really dumb things. I'm just shocked no one clicked the link. So 
A pair of young men have been charged with conducting DDoS attacks on various organizations and threatening violence at Los Angeles International Airport and hundreds of schools in America and Britain, according to an indictment unsealed Tuesday. The two alleged miscreants are accused of being part of a hacking collective known as Apophis Squad. They are accused of hacking targets as seemingly random as a university in Columbia, Proton Mail, and a motor company in Long Beach, California. The 19-year-old in the UK is already serving time, but the 20-year-old American whose handle was wanted by feds was arrested by U.S. authorities on Tuesday morning. Jen, it's pretty stupid to me to have a hacker handle of wanted by feds. That screams, teenager, though, like, look at me, I'm a badass. And it's not too dissimilar from all the NSA van Wi-Fi connections I see all over my neighborhood. Yeah, I mean, I can see the logic as a 17-year-old being like, come at me, bro. Except he was 20. Well, well, I'm guessing that this, because he had, he was doing this for years. So I'm guessing that this was a 16 or 17-year-old being like, yeah, yeah, cops, come get me, bro. Wait, what would your hacker handle be? Oh, my God. I don't. I, I don't want to tell that. I, oh, okay, that's OPSEC. I, I can't okay. reveal. Fair can't enough, reveal my black cat identities on uh, on this podcast. Fine. U.S. officials on Thursday announced the disruption of a major cybercrime ring based in Alexandria, Romania, that had defrauded Americans of millions of dollars through phishing and social engineering. This story has everything: Romanians posing as sergeants in the U.S. Army to trick Americans into buying non-existent cars on eBay, laundering money via cryptocurrency. And then the extradition of a dozen people in the U.S. for trial. Law enforcement officials will consider it a big win in their ongoing quest to hunt down foreign cyber criminals. So the dark web kind of got weird on us, huh? Yeah, this is something. I mean, hey, you put some credit card numbers out there on the dark web. You never know what they're going to be spent on, especially non-existent things. I want to know what kind of cars they bought. Yeah, uh, knowing if this was Romania and Eastern Europe, knowing the way that things work, I would not be surprised if it's like kit cars, like Fast and the Furious type things. So like Japanese muscle cars. Yeah, like we're talking like Mitsubishis, Acuras. Yeah, yeah, stuff like that. You're probably not going to trick even the dumbest American into buying a non-existent Porsche off eBay from somebody in Romania or, well, if it's U.S. military, maybe, you know. Maybe it's true. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you never know, but I would like to give even the smallest benefit of doubt to the people that are trying to buy cars off eBay that you're not going to plop down 200K to to buy a Porsche off eBay that you can't see a picture of. So here's the million dollar question. Um, If you were on the dark web and you bought a credit card, it didn't have a limit on it, what would you buy? You're just trying to put all my black hat hacker tendencies really out am, there in this yeah. episode. Okay. Um, <laughs> first, okay. I am not – this is a hypothetical. I, I do not do this. I am not going to incriminate myself either now or in the future or anything like that. This is hypothetical and allegedly. I would probably <laughs> spend it on a trip somewhere, somewhere tropical because why not? And if I'm good enough to get – Credit card numbers, I'm probably good enough to social engineer something. So I'm going to social engineer my way onto a private jet and I'm going to go somewhere where it's warm. What about you? I feel like I would, um, I don't know, buy everything in a David Yerman store because they're not going to track it back to me later. um, Unless you do it online. Well, but it depends on where I have it delivered to. Oh, there you go. But um, And how it gets to me after that. But, you know, you're on a trip and we kind of know where you're going, at least a little bit, at least airports and hotels Well, I don't want to stay there forever. It's not like I'm still, you're giving us like at least a week or two to find you. Sure. And I'm probably giving you enough information to 
coerce some arrest out of me in the future. I don't hack. I'm not a black cat. Okay, let's everybody. Reporter, VC, we're yeah, not on the dark web. There we go. So in other Eastern European cyber news, Facebook has removed nearly 200 accounts and pages for spreading fake news about Moldova ahead of an election that could deepen the divide between the country's pro-Russian and pro-Western lawmakers. The pages posted frequently about political issues such as required Russian language education and Moldova's supposed reunification with Romania. The nation of 3.5 million people is located between the European Union and Ukraine, a position that makes it tenuous when it comes to geopolitics. Moldova's government in recent years has shifted to a pro-EU stance, but President Igor Dodon took office in 2016 on a pro-Russian platform. Jen, the disinfo is everywhere. I guess we can cross Moldova off the list. I mean, people need to stop reading news on Facebook and just stick to memes and videos of dogs yeah i that's when social media is most enjoyable and not when you're reading about political candidates doing wild things that really make no sense but then an older relative thinks that that may be true because they saw it on facebook and to a lot of people facebook is the internet so it's you know it really goes to show that it's really not just the u.s or like g8 developed countries this disinfo thing happens everywhere now that said i did read a chapter in a book about um, what happens if moldova is taken over by different um countries and so okay I, I would enlighten us what happens oh, <laughs> it just apparently they're positioned in such a place where it's just a really important um, country to control um and could cause a lot of chaos if it sort of falls in the wrong hands in terms of like importing, exporting. So it's funny it. that you bring that up. The geopolitics that go into this is a really interesting discussion. And I know the Atlantic Council during the week of RSA is actually holding events across the world. They're holding events in Athens, in Madrid, in Brussels, dedicated to talking about disinfo and really coming at it from the standpoint of, hey, this really just isn't a you know top tier nation thing this happens all the time it doesn't necessarily even have to be russia we've seen it happen in thailand we've seen it happen in india mm-hmm. we've seen it happen all over the world the idea is coming online that if you're government and you have a democratic election you might want to watch out for this because it's a problem everywhere yeah so let's move from facebook over to instagram so information of about 14 million Instagram accounts is being kept in an unsecured database that could render users vulnerable to hackers, security researcher Oliver Huff told CyberScoop. Data includes um, the profile names, stored links to profile pictures, and Instagram IDs um, are available in the database, which was found on the Shodan web scanning service. The database is physically located in the UK, though it's not clear who is logging in the information. But Huff suggested a third party could be scraping Instagram and storing public data for analysis later, either for targeted marketing or another purpose. Greg, what do you think the purpose actually is? So if I had to rank what I think the purpose is, one, I don't think it's black hat hackers. I think this is somebody being shady for marketing purposes. Then I would say maybe you start to get into the hacker realm. Maybe somebody is gathering this for some other social engineering campaign or since 
profile names are often the same across the board, whether it's Instagram, Facebook, any other social media. You could be using this and cross-reference it with a password database and start credential stuffing across the board based on the information that was pulled here. Uh, Again, uh, this researcher that talked to us said, uh, I don't have any idea what the purpose is for, and I can't gleam it from the information that's in the database, but... There's a lot that you can do with all of that information. Um, you know, I, I really think that this is just shady marketing and not necessarily any sort of shady, nefarious hackers. But, hey, I could be wrong because I don't Who know. Who knows? Right. Yeah. So VPNs are a good way of obfuscating your location, but they can also send data to servers in countries that might spy on you. With that in mind, Senators Ron Wyden and Marco Rubio have asked the Department of Homeland Security to investigate the foreign VPN threat to federal employees. The senators wrote in a letter Thursday to DHS that if U.S. intelligence experts believe Beijing and Moscow are leveraging Chinese and Russian-made technology to surveil Americans, surely they should also be concerned about Americans sending their web browsing data directly to China and Russia. Jen, is this something you think about when you're using a VPN? No, it's not. I typically um, rely on the startups that I'm diligencing to invest in or already have invested in to to take care of some of those needs for me, like a VPN. Um, So I really don't often think about what's happening with my data from there. Right. I mean, well, you're doing your due diligence as a company, so you would understand where they were getting hardware from. But for federal employees, this is really important because obviously you should be paying attention to what kind of protocol they're using, how long they keep logging data. I mean, all of this stuff matters because in reality, it's just going from, you know, the ISP to this other company that's routing all this traffic. So there's still the chance that people can see this traffic. If your traffic is somehow being routed into China or Russia, especially if you're a federal employee and it's it's somehow connected to the federal enterprise, that's bad. That is bad. That's really, really bad. So uh, I totally get where the senators are coming from and understand that DHS should probably be paying attention to this. Now, it's going to be interesting to see if they say anything publicly, but I wouldn't be surprised if they're already talking about this you know, outside of what we know publicly and outside of the media. Probably. So um, research from Dallas-based Imperium discovered a way to manipulate Xiaomi M365 scooter through a Bluetooth connection. Users can access their scooter via an app that connects to the scooter as long as users authenticate with a password. However, Imperium researcher Ronnie Iden determined the password fails to completely protect users. Quote, during our research, we determined the password is not being used properly as part of the authentication process with the scooter and that all commands can be executed without the password. The password is only validated on the application side, but the scooter itself doesn't keep track of authentication state, said Aiden in a blog post on Tuesday. From there, Aiden wrote an app for his mobile device that allowed him to mess with a Xiaomi scooter that was in use. I'm really picturing you, Greg, going down the streets of D.C. on this scooter um, trying to okay. race me in my purple muscle car. Okay, okay. I do not own a scooter. I use the services that are out there. Uh, and it's funny because... Are you the, sure you didn't test drive one of these? I, I, I have... I, so, okay, uh, I will tell my, my... I will give my opinion on scooters since you're so... Uh, l- let me talk about this story first. How about that? <laughs> okay. So the, the scooter companies that are in D.C. and other big uh, metropolitan areas... Um, 
Bird is one of the big ones. They were using the Xiaomi scooters. There was another startup called Spin, which I think is actually owned by Ford now. Uh, they were also using the scooters. But uh, we've learned that even though they were using the Xiaomi scooters, Bird actually found this vulnerability about a year ago and never said anything about it and fixed the firmware in their own scooters. Oh, so they fixed them. So they're, so okay. they're fine. Uh, Spin told me that they've taken Xiaomi scooters out of rotation and that they only use Segway scooters now anyway. So yeah, Segway, all the scooters that you see out there, a lot of those models are actually made by Segway now. So I really um, in my head was thinking that I was going to be able to drive by you later and control your scooter from my phone. See, okay, no, you're not because <laughs> I I will admit that yes, I I have used I I tried the scooters out because they're everywhere and you see sure, everybody yeah. on them and you're like, okay, am I missing something? This has got to be convenient. And I've used it a couple times and yeah, it's cool. It's convenient to if instead of walking across town, if I just want to zip across town, I'm there in ten minutes instead of twenty that would sure, take me to walk. Yeah. But you get on them, and I was – this was probably not the smartest thing that I've ever done. I've I've traveled on them in rush hour in D.C., and you're going Helmet, along – Yeah, and that, I'm not wearing any of that. So <laughs> when you are, you know, going down some of these roads and there's traffic everywhere mm-hmm. and D.C. drivers aren't the best and there's metro buses and tour buses, it's like I'm going 15 miles an hour on this and I'm blazing through an intersection and I might end up being a hood ornament if I'm not careful. Yep. So, yeah, yeah, there's something about this that just doesn't seem safe. And we've seen those stories now where there's been an uptick in ER visits based on people using these scooters that don't use helmets, don't use knee pads. It might just fall off them because they're not familiar with how fast they're going or they might um, end up getting hit by a car. And that's on top of the fact that they're extremely disruptive to some cities and public transit and all of that stuff. So, yeah, I, I would say I thought I was going to be a scooter bro. I am not a scooter bro. So, uh there's your your final answer, final verdict. Interesting. I'll, I'm going to throw out one more um, transportation thing out here really fast. Um, today was the first day ever that I considered that I might buy myself a Tesla. Um, I saw that they now Lucky have... Lucky you. I, I'm shot. Well, I've never wanted one. I think they're not that interesting. But they now have a technology in them that um, alerts you if your dogs are at a safe temperature in the car. So wow. that came out today. Okay. I was like, oh, maybe I will switch from American Muscle to um, a Tesla. Okay. So th- there you go. Teslas, safer than scooters. We'll, we'll <laughs> leave it at that. Yes. So there was a ton going on in the business side of yeah. cybersecurity this week. Uh, one of the earliest players in the cloud data backup business is acquiring an internet security company whose reputation stretches back to the 1990s. Boston-based Carbonite is putting up $618.5 million in cash to buy Colorado-based WebRoot. It's the latest in a string of acquisitions for Carbonite, and the company said its goal is to improve endpoint security and threat intelligence as it continues to grow its cloud services. Business has been good for Carbonite and WebRoot recently, as each had double-digit growth percentage in 2018, according to some information that came out around the time of purchase. On the startup side of things, Axonius announced a 13 million Series A funding round this week led by Bessemer Venture Partners. 
There was also some participation from YL Ventures, Vertex, WTI, and Emerge. Uh, this is a really interesting company because if anybody's really interested in what they do, you'll get to see if their product works because they're part of the RSA Conference Innovation Sandbox in a few weeks. They are one of the 10 finalists. Another application security company saw a round of funding. Shift Left raised $20 million in Series B funding. The latest round was led by Tom Vest Ventures. It was joined by new investors Cinewave and Bain Capital was involved, Mayfield as well. Uh, this comes less than 18 months after the company announced its first round of $9.3 million, so they've raised about $30 million in 18 months. And then finally, C2A Security is an Israel-based provider of in-vehicle solutions that prevent cyber attacks, raised $6.5 million in Series A funding. Uh, Manev Mobility, ICV, and Labs2 were all involved. So we have another company moving into the vehicle cybersecurity space. Jen, that was a lot. What interests you about everything that has gone on? So I actually think um, the acquisition of Webroot is kind of interesting. So they are like that classic cybersecurity cockroach, you know, compared to like a unicorn that we talk about in Silicon Valley. So the cockroach typically describes a cybersecurity company that's been around a long time. This one's been around since 1997. That's slowly growing, but really strong growth through really huge potential. And, you know, we saw that they raised like, what, 110 million bucks and, um, I saw on PitchBook that maybe they've got like $210 million in revenue last year, you know, sold for the $620 million bucks, you know, so that's the, sort of that classic cockroach sort of growth pattern um, that we like to see in cybersecurity companies. And of course, um, the Axinus company being in Sandbox this year at RSA is interesting. Yeah, talk to me about that sandbox part because it was really interesting as I was writing the story on Exxonis Funding Round looking back over the 14 years that yeah. the RSA Sandbox has been done, and there are some really interesting companies that have grown out of that, and there's some other companies that we've really never heard of again. So talk to me about what you think the Sandbox really does. Is it really helpful for companies? Is this one of these marquee events that can really propel a company to something greater? I don't know if this is a marquee event in terms of propelling a company to greater, but it's certainly um, that committee that's picking the company certainly looks at you know, a really large group of companies and really does a good job of picking out what they think are, you know, those most innovative, most interesting, you know, new class of companies. Um, we've seen a bunch of our portfolio companies go through. And of course, you've seen um, companies that are really big go through. And of course, you know, some of the 10 fail. Yeah, it's really yeah. interesting. It almost reminds me of like the NBA or the NFL draft where you have all of these people come in and they can be picked. And then you have some companies that have gone on to really greater things. Like I know Ubico was a part of the innovation sandbox. Silence was a part of the yeah. information sandbox. And then you have some companies that just petered out. It, it it happens, and it happens the same way like there's a draft. Some players are really, really good, top of the line, and they grow to be all-stars, and then some other players yeah. come in that look they look great when they were on the board, and then you find out that, nah, not really. Yeah, I mean, it really work. matters, you know, where they're getting their funding from. It also matters who their first customers were. And, you know, there's so many variables. Like, you might pick up a really great, you know, first two, three, four, five customers – but there's so many variables around those those companies, right? What if your advocate leaves the company or what if they don't have funding for it anymore? Um, plus, you know, for every, you know, cybersecurity company we're seeing, there's probably another 20, 25 companies that look pretty similar. So you have to do a great job of, of figuring out why you're the unique choice. 
So um, out of funny news and into our interview with Marcus Carey, check it out. Okay, joining us now is Marcus Carey, founder and CEO of Threat Care and a newly published author. Marcus, thanks for joining us. I appreciate the time. Thanks for having me. So we will get into the book. We want to talk a lot about the book, but first let's talk a little bit about Threat Care. Tell us about the company, how it's come online, and what you're aiming to do in the cybersecurity space. Okay, so uh, we we uh, started the company in an uh, uh, incubator called Mock 37, uh, and that's under the Virginia State CIT uh, building and office and all that. And so uh, in there, we, we started off, uh, the company name was B-Threat, and the actual still name is B-Threat, but Threat Care is, is the name that we, we, we're known by uh, to the masses. And so uh, the company, we started on the principle that we made software that automates uh, pen testing, essentially, uh, where we imitate attacks and we, we help people uh, find out if they can stop the attacks and, and improve their networks. So that's what we do at Threat Care. So when you say simulate attacks, can we talk about that a little bit more? Are you talking like I sign on to a platform and say, oh, okay, there's the code for NotPetya. I'm going to try to launch NotPetya against my system and see if my system can stand up to that. Or is it something a little bit different? It's a little bit different. Uh, so basically what we're, we're trying to do is we're trying to do stuff on the inside out. Uh, so we would, we, would do, um, we would do stuff like lateral movement. Uh, exfiltration of data and things of that nature. And so, so that's what our breach and attack simulation platform does is it imitates uh, an attacker that's, I mean, uh, an attacker just trying to move and pivot on your network. Uh, and, and it imitates users that have already been compromised. So uh, this, this, you know, to test stuff like DLP, IDS, uh, and endpoint solutions and all that stuff. So that's what uh, the product that we, we uh, initially built uh, does. So I'm going to take us a step further back. How did you get your start in cybersecurity and what prompted you to start VThreat or ThreatCare? Yeah, so um, back in the day um, when I was 19, you know, 18 years old, uh, I wanted to be a pro basketball player, but that dream didn't happen. So, so did I. <laughs> Funny how that didn't work out. I didn't want to be one. <laughs> so uh, I, went, uh, I, had, I went to the U.S. Navy in order to get an opportunity to to get college, uh, I didn't have any money growing up, and you know I grew up in a kind of poor background. So uh, the military had a GI Bill, so I joined the Navy. I did good on my entrance exam, uh, so I got to be a cryptologic technician in the Navy, uh, and that means I worked with crypto and satellite communications and all kind of cool stuff, and uh, basically uh, supporting the NSA. Uh, I worked pretty much. Eight and a half years. My first eight and a half years of my adult life was doing uh, stuff for NSA. It was pretty cool. What from your time at the NSA has gone into the private side of what you're doing? Like, what are those lessons that you learned inside the NSA that have helped you form VThreat? Uh, so um, I had a pretty cool job at NSA. So at NSA during the day, I helped them build networks. Uh, I was on uh, a, an elite team of people that did global network engineering for uh, NSA during the day. And that was because I was in the Navy. 
And then at nighttime at NSA, I actually moonlighted and I worked for a contractor. And and that contractor uh, had has contracts to to put in the first uh, some of the first intrusion detection systems into the the intelligence community. So I actually worked at NSA and DIA. And so it was pretty cool because I built the global networks by day and at nighttime I got to defend them. And, uh, and that's how I learned, start learning about hacking and what hackers do trying to get into government systems. And so, uh, it was pretty amazing, uh, being there. And like I said, building the networks and then at night having a part-time job. And by the way, that part-time job, funny enough, paid more than my Navy salary did. <laughs> so I was making more part-time, uh, you know, defending hackers and all that stuff. Uh, and and that, that team that I worked on at night eventually uh, turned into this thing called the NISERT, which is uh, NSA SOC. So I helped build the NISERT, uh, you know, and that's, that's pretty dope. Uh, I'm just like, uh, I call myself the Black Forest Gump. And so okay. everywhere, I go, I, everywhere I go, I'm always doing something awesome and, and I've just been blessed with that. So thank you for your service. And um, could you sort of talk about what your typical customer looks like and what vulnerabilities you're finding? So typical customers are, are we deal a lot with software companies uh, because software companies are one of the, the few people that need to prove that they're actually secure. Uh, one of the biggest things that, you know, with building a company you, you start off and you think everybody needs security, right? Um, and so I think they do need it, but uh, unless it affects the bottom line, I don't think a lot of people are being really secure. And so what you see day to day, you know, working with a lot of different companies, uh, that the people aren't as secure as what people think they are, uh, uh, you know, like from a consumer perspective. Uh, many people aren't implementing any security, no policies, no nothing. So uh, and if you could take the real cynical approach, you could you would say that nobody cared about security. Uh, and I would say that uh, we need to make security more accessible uh, to any organization. So uh, so the typical customer, I mean, I see big customers and I see small customers and and and, and it doesn't matter how big they are, or how much money is spent on it. Uh, I think that they're experiencing the same problems. Uh, and it's just the scale of the problems that's, that's the, the that's the differentiating factor. And do customers come to you, or do you go to them by showing, like, hey, this is what's wrong with your website or your whatever it is? Yeah, so uh, we actually have a freemium tool that people can download and use uh, to um, to test the network, uh, and then from there we hope to upsell them on the paid product. So that's kind of how we we do uh, customer acquisition. Uh, from a business perspective, we do a lot of stuff. We 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 call people. We uh we do all kind of different things to try to get uh, leads and and uh and communicate with prospects. Uh, but uh but yeah. So with the with our freemium with our freemium product, they certainly can uh, get value from that. Uh, we try to add value first uh, as a company. Uh, we don't want to be selling a lot of fud. We just want them to see the value that we bring and hopefully. Uh, at the end of the day, there's a financial transaction. So you, so like we were saying before, you're just a published author. Your book just went online within the past two or three weeks titled Tribe of Hackers. Talk to us a little bit about the book. 
Yeah. Okay. So, um, so this is kind of pretty cool because uh, I'm really excited about the book. Uh, and so I read a lot of books. I probably read more books, but I actually cheat because I, I do Audible. So, uh, so do I. That's all right. That's not cheating. Yeah. So I, I, I got I, I listen to about 150 books on Audible. My, my library is ridiculous uh, on there. Okay. And, uh, and, and, I, and it comes to find out I'm a kind of auditory learner. So I learn. And so a book that I that I picked up uh, is a book called uh, and this is not an audible. This is the word chance where I picked up this book called Tribe of Mentors about Tim Ferriss. OK. And in that book, uh, what what uh, Tim Ferriss does is he interviews people that he knows and he knows a bunch of famous people. Right. That's his you know, he's everybody listens to him for a lot of different things. Right. So when I was reading the book, I was like, man, this is pretty cool because I have all these awesome, you know, friends at these security conferences. And and I know I know some people that, you know, in our space are pretty well known. I mean, you, you could you could call them famous. Uh, but my, my daughter at one point told me that, Daddy, you're famous to nerds. And so that made me feel kind of good. But, awesome. but so Tim Ferriss, he uh, instead of, you know, interviewing all these you know celebrities and stuff, I said, let me introduce my hacker friends and the people that I see at security conferences because they have a lot of insight that they want, you know, that they can contribute and 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 people can learn from it because I see these people. When I'm at a, when I'm at a conference, I'm speaking to some of these people that are kind of like you know, you know, people don't hate the term rock star, but they're people are looking at these people and you can see them gazing at them and they don't they're afraid to talk to them. Uh, so this book is a is is essentially me in a hallway at a conference talking to 70, 69 friends. You know, that's kind of like what this book is talking to people that I know, uh, people that I respect. They respect me. And so uh, we made an awesome, awesome book together. How did you pick the people that you interviewed? So initially what we did is we reached out. I reached out to people that I knew initially. Uh, and then we also uh, dove deeper uh, and asked people who they knew. Uh, and, and that was like super important uh, because I wanted to get a, a definitely a diverse group of people to participate in the book uh, because Funny enough, I've been in tech so long right now uh, that if I invited all the people that I work with or come across, like uh, I tell people my life is white right now. White friends, white church, my wife's white, white neighborhood, everything's white. So even myself as a black person, as a black man, it's like my life is not balanced and I don't have intersectionality in my life. So if I invited only people I knew to do this book, I would have, I would have came up with a you know a bunch of white guys that I work with and know. Uh, <laughs> so okay. what I did is I, I reached out and I, I reached out to, uh, you know I know do know some women that are that are that are amazing in the industry, and so I reached out to them and I was like who do, who who else do you know that's amazing like you that can participate in the book. Um, and I asked all the all the contributors the same kind of stuff, like how do we make this book, uh, you know, as diverse as possible, as many you know different viewpoints as possible, uh, and that's how we overall uh, we went intentional on making this a diverse group of voices because that's what the industry needs uh, right now. 
and and yeah, so everything we did was intentional, and then ended up being a great project. Everybody, you know, uh, I, you know, everybody brought something to the table, and and a really good valid, uh, you know, perspective, and then other people can learn from that. You know, other, you know, other people can say, okay, cool, I identify with this person. You know, this person's a woman. You know, Marcus is a is a black guy or whatever. Like whatever, whatever it takes for you to relate to somebody, I'm down for that. I love it. I love diversity. What was your favorite interview? My favorite interview, uh, dang, I'm gonna take some heat for this, but you put me on the spot. <laughs> um, like if Doug Songs, if you get the book, Doug Song is, is he gives an awesome uh, interview. Um, okay. One of the What's things in his interview was um, something like uh, the meaning to life is to to live a meaningful life. Uh, and so that really like, wow, that's crazy. And like, what's crazy is like, I mean, Doug just sold his company for two point something billion dollars. Right. Him and uh, Jono just sold the company. And he's been somewhat of a mentor to me because I talk to him from time to time, have dinner with him when we're in the same town. And so. Yeah, that dude is a beast. It's a lot of beasts in that book, though. And that book, Travel Hackers, is an amazing book. Uh, but but to have these personal insights and not just talk about technology, that's what makes the book special. Um, and uh, in Doug's interview, uh, he also talked about the Wu-Tang Manual. Okay. <laughs> which is, he's talking about Wu-Tang Clan. So Doug is a hip-hop fan. He also is a skateboarder. And so, but he's also just sold his company for two point whatever billion dollars, and so it humanized some of the people in the book, and and having somebody that just had that kind of exit and that success, talking about the Wu Tang and all that, that that's I just love that that interview. So, what was his company that he sold? I'm sorry, uh, Duo Security. Oh, okay. Oh, right. Of course. I've heard mm-hmm. of Duo. We've all heard of Duo. Right. Uh, is there anybody else that stands out, especially from like a business perspective, because you are obviously an entrepreneur, you want to grow your company. So I'm wondering if there's any stories within this book, besides the one that you were just talking about, that are entrepreneurial in nature. Oh, yeah. 100%. Uh, Ron Gula is also in the book. Okay. So Ron Gula was the founder and CEO for quite some time of Tenable. Uh Tenable uh, is a company up there in the Northern Virginia area. Right. Uh, yeah. We know Ron. Ron's been on our podcast mm-hmm. before. Yeah. Yeah. So crazy story. Ron actually has an NSA background too. And y'all probably know that, right? Yep. So Ron actually left the agency before I got there. And when I went to one of the shops I was working at, at the NSA, all they talked about was Ron Gula. And I never saw him before. This is like way back in the day, by the way. Okay. And he was in he was in the, he was in the Air Force, and and I was like, man, I want to meet this guy, Ron. This, he's supposed to be special because everybody talked about him, right? In the shop, he went out. He started a company and sold that company. Uh, and what's crazy is the group that I was at, at NSA was actually testing his stuff as well, uh, but I never had met him before. And so I finally met him one day when he was at Tenable. Uh, Ron tried to hire me a couple of times back in the day. Um, and like, I've been, I've been friends with him forever. Uh, and like, it's crazy how my life has been, like I said, I'm the black forest gump. This, you know, <laughs> you know, these, and, and Ron has grown a really big successful company, sold it. Now he's an investor, but I've been, I've been knowing him for, 
for so long is ridiculous. And he's actually invested in our company. So he's a, he's an investor and he advises me and he mentors me. And um, yeah, like I said, I'm, I'm especially in security. I'm just, I just bump in all these people. Like I'm just like, I'm either super blessed or the luckiest person on earth. But anyway, Ron, Ron is, is a very interesting character and I'm, I'm and his, his, his answers are great. Uh, and there's a couple other entrepreneurs. Georgia uh, is in the book, uh, and I know she was on the podcast recently. Georgia, we met on um, our podcast last week, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, so we had several entrepreneurs in there, um, and uh, it was it was it was good to have them in there, and it's good to to know them and and be in their network. I'm you know I'm just super lucky. So you did something interesting with your book. You actually decided to reset for free. There's a PDF version on the Threat Care website. Why did you decide to do that? Um, I mean, the whole purpose of this book was to, to allow people to come in, uh, into the door. And, and I, I saw, um, I wanted to do this because uh, people are going to bootleg your stuff eventually anyway. Okay. Um, you know, I learned this from the record industry a long time ago. Uh, it's a rapper uh, named Jadakus. He's a rapper. And he said that you want people to bootleg your stuff because they're not going to bootleg your stuff if you whack. Right? <laughs> so, yeah, that's totally right. <laughs> so if it's hot, you you want people, you want. So what I saw is two things when we released the book. I saw some people saying, man, I can't afford the book right now. And I was, and I saw people tweeting about, "Hey, bootleg, where's the PDF? Rip it for me." And I'm like, "Dang, people want people want a bootleg? All right, cool. I'm a bootlegger for y'all." And so, <laughs> yeah. that's what like it's hot. It must be hot if people want to bootleg it. And so we we released it for free. And then I saw that you had donated some proceeds from the book sales on Amazon to a couple charities. Um, how did you pick the charities? What are they? What do they mean to you? So one of the things that I'm, uh, it's a guy named Chris Sanders, uh, and uh, he has a he has this thing called the Rural Tech Fund, uh, and so that was the first person we actually donated to, and so the Rural Tech Fund is an organization that that gets uh, technical books and other materials and training and stuff uh, to rural areas. And I grew up from the country. Uh, I grew up. I was born in my grandmother's house. In, the, in in a county with you know with no no outhouse propane tank outside wood burning stove all that that's how, that's where I'm from wow. okay so uh, when I get when I come into a room thank God I'm a country boy start playing <laughs> so basically coming from that background and 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 all that you know I know that there's there's people that are under you know underserved community. That underserved community is not just, you know, definitely some some uh, minority people like myself, but you know, there's there's a uh, you know little you know little kids that are Caucasians that are out there that, that don't have access to stuff that we have. Heck, if you go, I live in Austin. If you go 15 miles north of here, it's the same situation. So um, near and dear to my heart, I believe that people lower lower class, lower income people, no matter what what the background is. I love donating and helping them out. And so uh, we did 50, we donated 50 books, I believe, because the organization is working around 50 schools in, uh, in rural areas of Georgia. 
and Southeast. So we, we gave them 50 free books. Uh, that was the first donation to Rural Tech Fund. Check them out. Nice. Um, and the other organizations that we donated to um, are near and dear to my heart. Uh, one of them, the first one, uh, Sickle Cell Anemia, I mean, Sickle Cell Disease Foundation. Um, unfortunately, my sister passed away about two years ago. Um, and uh, she had sickle cell disease. And so that's near and dear to my heart. I have sickle cell trait. We also, there's this organization called Bunker Labs. Bunker Labs donates, uh, they donate time, money, and resources to uh, veteran entrepreneurs that are trying to start businesses. It's like a veteran uh, incubator. They don't they don't charge any equity, but they give tons of time and, and uh, mentorship to veteran entrepreneurs. So if you're a veteran out there, check out Bunker Labs. So we also, uh, we also donated to uh, the Rainforest Partnership. So the Rainforest Partnership is uh, uh, Jennifer Jen, uh, Jen Jen, my co-author. She's our head of communications and co-author to the book. She uh, volunteers a lot <coughs> at this organization. Uh, and we also have uh, one of our one of our team members, Justin Moss. Uh, he's a teacher at this thing called Startup Kids Club. And Startups Kids Club is uh, they actually teach kids uh, how to start businesses and and manage their money and build products and and take it to market and sell it. Uh, and so kids as young as five years old are starting their own businesses in an org, and it's pretty cool. So those are those are the people that the charities that we're doing it. And we'll like I said with the Rural Tech Fund, we'll we'll make strategic donations as well. So I want to go back to something that you were talking about, and you've hit upon it in some of the other questions that we've asked. The intersectionality, especially when it comes to cybersecurity. I mean, you said it, this industry is very, very white. So how, in your eyes, do you, you see uh, minorities and underrepresented populations coming aboard into cybersecurity, and how do you see that improving the overall cybersecurity industry? Yeah, it's, it's funny enough. Um, so <laughs> I did a DNA test recently and I found out I was 23% white. So, <laughs> so it was, it was just funny to be like, wow, I didn't, I didn't even know that. Okay. But how do, how do we do, do that? I, I think that it's, I think ultimately, uh, I think that access to technology and education and things of that nature are class-based mostly. Uh, but what so happens is that, you know, you know, black people historically have have been, you know, you know, I guess you would say discriminated against, and so that's why we end up in the lower class, you know, uh, more often than not. So, uh, I mean, and so I think that what happens over time is that that hopefully people. Uh, Hopefully we get better and recognize that, okay, cool. This is a reason why uh, these people have been down for so long. And hopefully there's people that can make a difference. I know I try to make a difference. I go try to talk and, and all that stuff, but it's, it's like, it's like really a society problem is I don't, it's more a society issue than it is the industry issue, because I think that any industry is a representation of society. Even when I was in the military, they said the military 
is a representation of the American society. So I think it's a country problem, uh, and and it's just you. It reflects the country's values, no matter where you go. You can't you can't run, you can't hide from it. And so since security, cybersecurity is like a, a kind of a high end, almost like bougie kind of group of you know of work. You know, you know a lot of people are highly educated. A lot of, and and a lot of people have certifications. Like, like, how can you pay for that stuff? How can you get in into the door? And so what we want to do in my mission is to make it more accessible for for the masses. Um, and I think that that's what we have to do. We have to recognize that everybody doesn't have those opportunities. But I would say research shows that no matter what your background is, with the right training, within six months, you can master a task. And so... I think that 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 we need to we need to loosen up some of the requirements to to jobs, and we need to we could we could do better training from a corporate perspective. I mean, there's companies that are making a lot of money uh, out here, and and I'm a I'm a capitalist. Is I'm a, I love the capitalism. That's why I'm starting a company myself and, okay. and building a company. But those companies could actually invest more in people and training. And what's funny is like I think that, you know, threat care. That's the reason why we we gave the PDF for free. That's the reason why we're we're doing more books. We we got about five or six books planned, and so be on the lookout for that because we're trying to make it accessible to everybody. And so this tribe of hackers thing is not just one book. It's a series. It's a movement of where we're trying to allow information to be accessible to anybody. So we have people in Africa, people in India, people all over the globe that are reaching out, DMing me, thanking me, and and thanking the squad for for producing this content. So I think education is the key. The difference between me and and my cousin that's in the hood somewhere right now doing something is I I'm you know I I, I just happen to get educated by the military and, and working at the NSA. So that's the only difference between me and him. So you said there that you have five or six books planned. Do, do you have any idea of what those five or six books are going to look like? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so so the next book that's coming out in a few months is uh, is going to be Tribe of Hackers, uh, the Leaders Edition. And so we're, we're interviewing uh, CISOs and, and leaders of security organizations, asking them all kind of awesome questions like, how do you build a team? How do you hire the right people? How do you communicate with management? How do you... How do you achieve your security goals? How do you how do you how did you manage how to do accounting principles related to budget? All these different things, and we have tons of CISOs and leaders that are giving feedback. So it's going to be discipline related. So the, the original Tribe of Hackers is is more about general cybersecurity from a lot of different people. Now the the other the, the next books we have are focused on disciplines like incident response and things of that nature. And so uh, we're going to be doing books on several different topics and we're going to get the best from, from that particular discipline to participate in the book. So expect that, that leaders edition to come out soon because we, we believe that, you know, the first version we got people into the door. Now we're going to work on the leaders and then we're going to work on the particular disciplines. So you can, if you know, if, if you want to do red teaming, there's going to be a red team edition. If you're a blue teamer, 
there's going to be a blue team edition of, of Tribe of Hackers. And so we're we're really about getting this information out there to the people. And I think that's the way you bring more people in is by being transparent. Uh, you know, y'all know me, y'all see me on Twitter or whatever. I'm I'm totally open. My DMs always open. I'm probably talking too much on there, but I'm open <laughs> and I think that's the only way we're going to change anything. So earlier on the podcast, Greg and I were talking about an article that came out about um, some bad actors stealing a credit card on the dark web and um, buying random stuff. And so I asked Greg what he would buy. So my question to you, we always end on a random question, is if you were to buy a credit card on the dark web, what would you buy with it? Hey, I would never do that. Well, of course you would do it. But if- Hypothetically, Hypothetically, we are not trying to incriminate you or anything like that. And I said the same exact thing when we did the interview. If so, if you just had an unlimited line of credit, what would you be spending it on? Greg would go on vacation. I would buy everything in a David Yerman store. I would take my family to Hawaii. Okay. See? Okay, my side. See, everybody yeah, wants to go. Everybody yeah, wants yeah, to go yeah. to the islands. That's what's up. I like your choice. Yeah, we li- we lived in Hawaii. My daughter, my oldest daughter was born in Hawaii, but I was on I was on a ship, so we didn't really get to enjoy it as much. I was I was stationed there, so Nice. But yeah, I would love to go to Hawaii. Great. Marcus, really appreciate you jumping on board. Best of luck with the future books, and hopefully we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Marcus. I appreciate you. Thanks. Thanks again to Marcus for the great discussion about his path in the cybersecurity industry. Again, his book, Tribe of Hackers, is available from Amazon and also free via PDF on their website, threatcare.com. So to close, Jen, yesterday was Valentine's Day. And if you spend any time on Twitter, there were tons of like roses are red jokes. I'm going to read you some and you can rate them on a scale from one to 10 or whether you like them or not. And I I want to hear your favorite. First one, really more of a PSA than a joke, but last pass is red. One password is blue. Dash lane is my favorite, but whatever works for you. Dash lane must have written that. It was actually just some random Twitter follower okay. that I saw out there. I'm Yeah, it, it, it's more marketing. Uh, let's call it a PSA. Go get a password manager if you haven't, but I'm sure everybody that listens to this has one anyway. Probably. So yeah. whatever. Next one. Roses are red. Bad code is two. Insecure web server will redirect. I you. like that one. It's funny. Okay, there we go. I thought it's that was cute. pretty good. Yeah. That was pretty good. Probably my favorite here. Roses are red. Sometimes they're pink. Your computer is wrecked because you clicked on that link. That's hilarious. That's and definitely the best one. Well, that's because I wrote it. Oh, of course. There we go. There we go. Nice nice little vanity play there for everybody on Valentine's Day. Have a good one. We'll see you next week. Stay curious.